Is life returning to normal a little bit for you? Yeah, sort of, I guess. <laughs> it's weird being away. It was, it's been weird being here. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Charles, I don't know how you did it, though. I will say that. Well... I will tell you that now that I have power back and everybody's back, like this, just all the exhaustion hit me at once. I've just been kind of like put it, pushing it aside for the last week. So it's also weird when like acute crisis mode passes and then all the other like bullshit in your life comes back. Mm-hmm. In. That's an exhausting feeling for sure. It is. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, Louisiana is recovering from Hurricane Ida, the fifth largest hurricane to hit the continental United States. Most of the city of New Orleans has had their power restored, but for the hardest hit communities, it could be weeks. We'll talk about the city's evacuation program and how the jail populations fared. And we'll check in on the plans to reopen schools as a third of the student population is sidelined. And we'll talk about the COVID situation post-Ida. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Kayla. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hello, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens Editor, Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. Okay, Michael, we're 11 days out from Hurricane Ida. It made landfall in southeast Louisiana. It roared on shore. And what happened to the electrical grid when it did? Yeah, so the short answer is that it pretty much devastated um, the electric grid in the region. Um, <clears throat> we were dealing with really, really high winds, um, and those winds were sustained for a really, really long time, um, which brought down a lot of poles, wires, damaged, you know, every type of, you know, equipment that exists on the electric grid pretty much. Um, you know, if you think about just um, distribution poles, those poles that you see running down every street, um, there were 30,000 uh, damaged or destroyed distribution poles, um, and that is number, that, that number is higher than the number of poles damaged in Katrina, Delta, and Zeta combined. Um, it's was a statistic that Entergy gave recently. You know, and, and for New Orleans, so, you know, it, it brought devastation to that local distribution system, all those lines, all those poles, all those wires, but it also did damage to the regional transmission system. And so, you know, we've talked about this before, but, but one, you know, simple way to think about the electric grid is that you have the local distribution system, which gets, you know, energy from house to house, business to business. And then you have these um, regional transmission lines, which bring power from big power plants to different cities and towns, you know, all over, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas, all over the region. So in this situation, not only was our distribution line, uh, distribution system kind of devastated, but all the transmission lines that bring in power to the city were damaged. So, so there was no power coming to the city um, from outside. Even if our distribution system had been able to handle it, um, there was no power coming in. Um, so that was kind of the, the drastic situation we, we found ourselves in. In the pre-storm phase, when people were evacuating, I had a friend who was on their way to Florida, and he said he was passing an armada of trucks that, you know, people were going one way, running away from it. And this was a group of, he said, hundreds of trucks coming in. So how does Entergy, how do they allocate all that need? Yeah, so so they, they contract out with other linemen. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not 
exactly sure how that contracting process goes. I'm not sure if they have agreements in place or not, but I know I do know they brought in 26,000 additional workers from 41 different states um, to to supplement you know the workers that are already here. Um, 5,000 of those were just working in Orleans Parish alone. Um, and then in terms of how they're distributed, um, you know, I, it seems like the strategy was to, um, you know, get, get the workers into more like easy to fix areas, um, you know, and then as more places are brought online, start, you know, concentrating those workers in the harder hit areas that, you know, need these longer term repairs. Um, you know, again, I'm not sure exactly how they decided where, you know, how to distribute all these workers, but I do know that it was, you know, like you were saying, you know, tens of thousands uh, of workers. And in some situations, it's not just, um, as you talked about damage to transmission lines, it's not just, oh, well, let's just put this back up. It's the actual line or the structure itself that was damaged. And so they have to get steel and whatever the material is. I, I just can't even imagine the job. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, these big transmission towers, you, you know, you've probably seen them before, huge metal things with yeah. big wires on them. You, know, you can't just, those aren't just in some warehouse somewhere that you can order, you know, and, 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 you know, each one is built at a specific height and depending on what the land is like beneath it, it might have to be different. So yeah, fabricating transmission lines, it's, it's notoriously, you know, a much longer process than fixing the distribution lines, which, you know, they vary, but they're mostly just these big wooden poles. Um, you know, the transmission towers, you know, they're, they're really hard to, to um, fabricate in, in, you know, in emergency situations for sure. For some of us who waited longer than others, it, it felt like a long time, but some people got power back pretty quick. How did the rollout happen? Yeah, so I, I'll, everything I, I say right now should be taken with a grain of salt. I think that in terms of how power was restored, how quickly it was restored, um, and, and what decisions were made. I mean, I, I think that that's going to be, we're going to need a little bit of a retrospective look. We'll, we'll definitely need more information from Entergy. Um, you know, understandably, you know, they've been in crisis mode and, and they've been getting out information, but we don't have, um, you know, every detail of how it happened. Um, we know that, that um, you know, a story has been about, um, you know, we have the New Orleans power station in New Orleans East, um, you know, a, a, a power plant that we've covered for years. Um, and, you know, one of the big selling points of this power plant was its so-called Black Star capability, um, which means that, you know, a power plant, you, you know, a lot of power plants need some sort of outside electricity to get going, to get started and, and you know, start making power on its own. Now, this power plant, they said, um, was different in that it could start without any external power. Mm. So they sold it as, you know, in this exact situation, in the situation where New Orleans was, um, you know, cut off from all the regional transmission lines, um, what's called islanded sometimes, um, that this power plant would be able to start up on its own um, and start, you know, it, it was never going to be big enough to, to um, get power to the whole city, but, you know, helps get things started, helps get, you know, critical customers back online, like hospitals and things like that. Now, what we know is that that's not what happened in this situation. What we do know is that they, the, the, the way they got the first lights back on is by reconnecting New Orleans to the transmission grid. Um, now we know New Orleans power station played some role in that. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I'm a little unclear on, on how important that role was and what would have happened if NOPS was not there. Um, yeah, but, the, the, way, the way they kind of explained it was that it was it was the power was being routed into 
the New Orleans power station, it was being relayed, like it was being distrib- dis- distributed out of the New Orleans power station. Right. And, and again, you know, this stuff is really, really complicated, you know, but yeah. we should be, um, you know, shy about, about that. Um, and, and, you know, it, so, so part of it, um, what they said the use of this power station was, was making sure you can't just, if, when an when a electric grid goes down, you can't just dump power back onto it, or you could overload the system and cause even more damage after that. So um, one purpose was making sure, you know, they doled out energy back into the system in this kind of controlled manner. They said it acted as a quote unquote switching station. You know, I have some questions around, you know, whether there are other switching stations we could have used, you know, how expensive a switching station is versus a, a power plant. So again, there's a lot of, you know, questions that still last, uh, that we still have to ask. But um, the point here is that we didn't get power back until we were reconnected to the transmission uh, uh, system. Okay. You've explained before, too, the delicate balance of request for power, the call for power, or, you know, demand of customer use versus how, how they have to balance that, you know, bringing it in exact amount that's being asked for by the customer otherwise things can go awry and going awry in the electrical grid is really bad how do do they take into account certain people are going to the minute they get power back on crank their air conditioning down run laundry you know do things that are um, really energy intensive but they also say at the same time can you please not do that? How, how I wonder how they do that dance. It seems really delicate. Yeah. So so this is kind of you know w- one of the unknowns for me. I, I mean I, I'm I think we're clear on what the initial problem was, um, and that you know we needed to get reconnected back to these transmission lines. Um, but to be honest with you, after we got reconnected to the transmission lines, I'm not totally clear on what the primary challenge for energy was. I'm not sure if it was all about you know, like you said, making sure the system wasn't overloaded or if the main issue was, you know, after we got connected to transmission lines, maybe this became more of a normal distribution line repair, um, you know, operation. So I I just got to be totally honest. I'm not sure what the central challenges were for Entergy. Um, You know, I I think, again, it was very clear at first that the issue was that we were not connected to the transmission system after that. Why it took, you know, more days to get everyone back online. Um, those are kind of the details that I'm still, you know, trying to get at. Yeah, I think I, sort of if I remember the timeline and I'm looking back at this is that we got to um, the 4th, which was Saturday. And that's, that was when they got um, enough, enough transmission lines back on to consider at least the city of New Orleans and the, and, you know, the close in metro area to be quote, fully secure. Um, and at that point, as they kind of explained it on Saturday and Sunday, it became an issue of fixing the distribution systems in neighborhoods. Um, because there were kind of, there were two two tracks happening at the same time. There was transmission repair that was going on up to about the fourth coming into the city. And then uh, there was distribution damage assessment that was going on at the same time. And once we got to the fourth where we were fully secure, according to Entergy, that's when they could move from distribution assessment to distribution repair. I have a silly question. This might be in your stories, Michael, but they say we have eight transmission lines that come into the city, right? Do we need all of those to be operational or do we only need one or do we need, you know, a handful? Like, do well, they ever explain that? Well, the, at the point at which they said that the city, the, the city was ready um, to, you know, be fully powered on again. We, that wasn't until we got 75% of those back on. 
so that was that was six of the eight. And and so Charles, when they were talking about being fully secure, um, you know, we've covered other energy issues where the, the main issue was that demand was higher than supply, um, right. which caused these cascading outages. Was that part of the problem in terms of not it, when they were saying fully secure? Was it that okay now we have enough supply to connect all of the houses? Yes, that, that, that's what they were. Yeah, that's what they were saying. Um, and and and. Uh, so I, I think what we saw, saw here is that um, we had, you know, in some, in many ways, less demand than we would normally have because we only had about 200,000, at least in the city of New Orleans, because we only had about 200,000 people in the city um, up, up until the last few days. And maybe that's why 75% instead of 100% of transmission was ad- adequate. But certainly they were not talking in terms of um, having nearly enough transmission coming in when we only had that one line running in from slide L for several days. They, they didn't say we were ready until we got, you know, five or six lines up. Speaking of which, um, the last time that there was a total transmission failure into the city of New Orleans, there were uh, 13 transmission lines coming into the city and not eight. Uh, and uh, so that that's that's something I'm going to be interested in hearing about, you know, why, you know, at what point and why we lost those additional transmission lines that we used to have coming into the city. And, and I'll add one more note on this. You know, again, this was, I guess, 2018, uh, we were covering the, the, the fight over the, the new power plant. And, and one thing that opponents to the power plant had said is that there were, you know, these energy filings that said, um, again, one of the main reasons this plant was sold was that it was really important, you know, to avoid some of these very catastrophic, you know, islanding effects where, where you're cut off from the entire transmission system. Um, and in energy filings, you know, they had said, okay, if we don't build this power plant, you know, which the construction costs alone were uh, above $200 million, the ultimate cost to, con- to, to um, customers is going to be upwards of $600 million. Um, they said, if we don't build this power plant, we're going to have to do all these transmission repairs um, and transmission upgrades. Um, and that would have only cost something somewhere between 40 and $50 million. Now, what opponents charged is that Entergy never seriously, you know, looked at this alternative plan because they had incentive to want to build a more expensive power plant. That was the allegation at the time. Now, I've tried to look back and see exactly what those transmission upgrades would be. Um, so far, I, I believe um, that the exact plans for what those transmission upgrades um, were going to be are not public. Um, There are some utility filings, um, some for security reasons, some for proprietary reasons um, that are not public. So I've been trying to find out, you know, if those alternative transmission upgrades were done, whether that would have made any difference here, but it's it's really, really hard to tell. Okay. From my perspective, they're pretty good with their estimates. They've been, at least in my experience, pretty accurate. You know, what's making national news is this utter devastation of these communities, Terrebonne, Grand Isle, Lafitte, all of these places. What's the over-under on them getting power back to places like that? in three and a half weeks, three weeks from now? I think every storm is like, uh, it is different, you know, um, in this one, they, they keep using the word unprecedented over and over. So uh, I think there's definitely room for some, um, there's definitely some wiggle room on their estimations. I, I you know, I think that once they, um, kind of the, one of the first things they did was do a damage assessment. Um, it seems like after the damage assessment, they've been, like you said, pretty, pretty accurate in terms of, um, you know, how long things are going to take. You know, I, I mean, I don't think there's any, 
reason to doubt that by the end of the month, these places will have power. It also wouldn't be a huge shock if there were some delays in that, given the devastation. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be something we got to wait and see on. I think yeah, also, like, what did we see during Laura? You know, that was unprecedented at the time. Yeah. It also took weeks and weeks and weeks. It was, you know, a slightly more rural community, but still was a very long time for power restoration there. Although that was also, like Michael talked about earlier, a lot more of like the major transmission, you know, kind of cross state country lines were down. Okay. Well, Michael, thank you so much for covering this. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, education reporter Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Philip Kiefer, health reporter here at The Lens. When it matters, The Lens is here. And we're here because of you. Because of the thousands of people like you who support this service, you get the news that you tell us matters. Your tax-deductible gift now ensures that everyone in the community has access to facts and diverse voices and points of view. Ensure that you have the information you need and the news that matters. Every donation adds up to a public media service that serves the community. Make a donation at thelensnola.org donate. And thank you. Nick, over the weekend, you wrote about the city's post-storm evacuation program. You talked to a lot of people who were on their way out of town. What did you hear? Well, I heard some some really, really sad and, and uh, you know, heartbreaking stories about people's, people's experience with the storm. So the, the mayor's evacuation program, it started up on... Uh, on Saturday, um, and you know, almost a week after the storm hit, so people who were evacuating had had been living in the city without power, sometimes in really difficult situations for for almost a week. So, for instance, one man I talked to uh, named Elgin Barden. His family lives on on the West Bank, um, but he had come over to the East Bank. I, maybe I should back up. Um, many of the people I talked to had boarded boarded a a bus at the the uh, Treme Community Center and and rode it with some folks to the convention center, which was kind of the the main staging area for these evacuation buses that were taking people to state shelters, both uh, up in northern Louisiana and then out of state. And no one really knew where they were going to end up. It was, um, you know, it, as people were boarding the bus, they still didn't know exactly what, what shelter they were heading to. Mm. But anyway, I, I talked to a number of people on this bus from the Treme Community Center and wrote it, wrote it with them. So one, one man, Elgin Barden, he had, his family was, lived on the West Bank. He had come over to the East Bank for, for work prior to the storm to board up, uh, you know, help board up some windows. By the time he was finished with work, the, the buses had stopped running. Um, so he couldn't get back over to the West Bank uh, with his family. And I ended up riding, riding out the storm with um, a friend at a friend's house. But he wasn't able to stay there long. And, and he spent the next, you know, five days uh, on the street with with uh, nothing on him. You know, I think in, in at the time we were getting with the temperatures were close to 100. Maybe heat index is over 100. So he he he. I think spent some nights in, in shelters. He said he spent the night in the hospital. Um, and you know, he, he had, he had 
bad eczema that he wasn't able to get medication for. So his, his skin was very, very dry and, and cracked. But all, all things considered, he was actually in, in fairly good spirits when I talked to him. He was, he was happy to be getting out of the city. Um, his family had, had evacuated after the storm as well and gone to Slidell and he knew they were safe. He had a cell phone, so he was able to get in touch with them. I, I heard a number of stories that that sort of were equally as as uh, that contained kind of kind of the same level of adversity as as that or close to it. You know, people who people who lost a lot of things. An elderly man who was sleeping in the lobby of uh, of his apartment complex. So all to say that that these people had been through a lot, and many but many of them were happy to finally have the opportunity to to get out of the situations that they had been in. Well, what is the city saying about this? Post post storm evacuation program. Well, I should say that they they first of all aren't calling it an, an evacuation program. I think they're calling it a city assisted transportation to shelters program. Um, although, as I note in the story, everyone who who was boarding a bus was handed a, a yellow slip that said evacuation ticket on top. So mm-hmm. maybe undermining a little bit of the the city's messaging on that. But to be honest, I have not. I have not asked the city for a ton of answers on this. Uh, my, my main, you know, hope in writing the story was to get some people's stories um, and to kind of see, see the reasons that they, they were utilizing it. Um, but, you know, I think there is a, a question, especially as we see what was going on in some of the assisted living facilities and nursing facilities uh, in the city, why this wasn't an option earlier, um, I, think, I think is a question, you know, worth asking. Yeah, I mean, one of these one one of the things we have to keep in mind in in any major emergency event like this is that people, reporters, and the public are are asking these questions now. But a lot of this isn't going to be you know unraveled for for weeks or months. But but yes, this does continue to be a question. You know, it was, it was one of one of several things uh, related to to evacuations that people have been asking about. You know, there wasn't a a, a mandatory evacuation. Uh, prior to the storm in New Orleans, which is, uh, you know, which has caused some people some uh, some problems um, with their insurance companies and uh, potentially with FEMA getting reimbursement. Although, again, you know, that's something that continues to work itself out. Hearing about more insurance companies that are that are going to be insuring people despite the lack of a mandatory evacuation. FEMA is saying it's going to cover more expenses in spite of a uh, in spite of the lack of a mandatory evacuation. So we had that. You know, uh, supposedly because this storm was moving so fast and developed in the Gulf um, that uh, there wasn't enough time to establish contraflow out of the city to do a mandatory evacuation. That that makes sense. But but, you know, it's one of those things that we're going to find out more about as the, as things go on. Right. Um, and and the other thing is why the you know, why the six or so days before there was any post storm. Um, and you know, as, as Nick mentioned that, that does seem as if it will, there are going to be some, some implications with these, uh, tragedies that have happened at this, uh, at these assisted living facilities. Right. And meanwhile, the backdrop to all of this is COVID. When you saw people with their evacuation tickets, were they masked? Tell me about the man you met who was diagnosed with COVID. Yeah, for the most part, um, uh, people were masked, um, and, and, taking some precautions in that sense. I, I learned that this man who, who had 
been stranded on the east bank throughout the throughout the storm and then was able to finally evacuate when he got to i think he ended up in shreveport to one of these state facilities they gave him a rapid covid test and he he tested positive so i talked to him that evening and he told me that and then from there he was transported to uh, a, a medical shelter um and actually one of our other reporters has, has been keeping up with him a little bit more since then and it sounds like you know, he was segregated from from the rest of the the people he had rode on the bus with, but that those people who he presumably, you know, had had exposed were in a separate facility. So, you know, I think that it is a big concern. Um, I know we have a story on our website about the the risk the risks of spreading COVID in these congregate shelters. And as you know, people have had to gather more to just get resources and, and supplies. So I think it's it's a big concern. Um, I will say that the you know the man I spoke to Elgin, he, he is asymptomatic and, and did not seem concerned about developing serious illness. He said he was vaccinated. So, you know, I'm, I'm planning on checking in with him again today, but things do seem okay. And he, he said that he was um, feeling very comfortable in the shelter and was, was happy to have gotten out of the city. So. Okay. Yeah. And last, uh, and last we heard as well, his, uh, his, uh, his family was back in their house and they've, they've got power again. Uh, that, that, you know, that was a couple of days ago and, Obviously, they're still uh, still in the restoration process with power. Some people have seen their power come and go, but that's the last we heard. Okay. And lots of local jails were right in the path of Ida. How did they prepare? What happened to the jails? Well, a number of jails, about half a dozen jails evacuated, um, including Orleans Parish, which has, you know, uh, upwards of 800 um, detainees. And those those uh, detainees and prisoners, you know, in a lot of these local jails, not so much in Orleans, but in a lot of these local jails, there's a mix of pretrial detainees, of state prisoners, and even of federal prisoners. So they were kind of, you know, scattered throughout the, the state facilities. The main state facilities they went to were, were Angola, where almost all of the uh, detainees from Orleans went, and Elaine Hunt, um, which is outside of Baton Rouge. And then a number of them were transferred to other other local jails that were outside of the storm's path. But a handful of, of jails that, you know, were in places that got hit pretty bad, including St. Charles, Lafourche, uh, Jefferson Parish, did not evacuate, including, you know, in, in St. Charles and in Lafourche, there were mandatory evacuations um, for those areas, but those jails were still not evacuated. Mm. So, you know, what we've, what we've heard, and I, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in jails in kind of the best uh, conditions can be pretty difficult. Um, right. There's limited communication coming in and out and you can't, you can't just walk in there and find out what's going on. But in the current circumstances, you know, with not only power and in some cases phone lines down, but with sheriff's offices working, you know, kind of over time trying to do recovery efforts of doing a lot of patrolling um, of neighborhoods with, you know, given the fact that the power's out and they're doing looting patrols. It's been hard. It's been very hard to get information. What the basic information we've gotten from from, you know, both St. Charles and Lafourche and Jefferson as well is that they're running on generator power. The sheriff's offices have basically said that that everything's fine, um, that um, the conditions are, are just fine. But like I said, it's been hard to, to get in touch with anyone there to, to really, you know, confirm that uh, beyond what, what we're hearing from the sheriff's office. And, and, and well, and not just hard for you, right? Hard, hard for people who got family and friends in, in jail too. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I talked to, you know, two people with, with loved ones in uh, St. Charles jail and those phone lines are completely down. And also some, a woman who, who has a, a close friend in the Jefferson parish jail and she hasn't been able to, to reach her, although the, the phone lines were up and actually I did learn prior, uh, you know, after writing the story that, that uh, she, she has been now since able to get in touch. Um, but, you know, part of the frustration here is, is communication is hard after these storms and people are having trouble getting in touch with anyone. But I think for people with loved ones in jail, you know, these people are the only way they're going to get information is if it's provided by, by the state that, that is holding them in custody. Um, so, so these sheriffs, you know, both in, in St. Charles and Jefferson were giving press conferences pretty frequently, but the only real mention of the jails they would ever, is it was kind of these offhanded remarks about locking people up if they, if they're committing crimes, kind of saying, you know, my jail's up and running, um, which was not a, a comforting, you know, just hearing that without any more sort of detailed explanation about what the conditions were, you know, especially in places that, didn't, don't have power, don't have running water, um, were, I think it was really hard for, for these families to hear uh, and not to have some way to contact their, their loved ones or to, to have some, you know, more assurance from, from the sheriff's offices or the people running the jails. Is there any repercussion? If I understand you correctly, there were mandatory evacuation orders that these jail facilities or these sheriffs def- defied those orders. Is no, no, not strictly speaking, at least as I understand the law, the, the mandatory evacuation order, you know, applies to the people who are under the direct jurisdiction of the parish president, but the people in jail are under the jurisdiction of the sheriff. So the jail is the sheriff's domain and the sheriff's call. Okay. I, I wrote in, in a story this week about uh, civil rights groups sort of criticizing the way that this was handled, including the, the fact that these jails didn't in places with mandatory evacuations didn't evacuate and one of their arguments is that there should be some sort of state guidance that you know Mm. at least if nothing else encourages the sheriffs to evacuate their jails if they're in a mandatory evacuation zone it was in a letter to the governor that they they made this case and and, you know a spokesperson for the governor's office said uh basically it's the sheriff's call um you know they have the best sense of whether or not they should evacuate we should just say, you know, the backdrop of all of this is is what happened to uh, the the detainees and prisoners in Orleans Parish Prison after Hurricane Katrina, where the jail flooded. You know, people were locked in there um, as as the water rose up to up to their chests. In some cases, um, guards abandoned the facility, um, and it was just by all accounts a, a truly kind of horrific horrific scene and the the sort of chaos of 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 transferring people and people sitting on uh you know the the broad street uh broad street bridge um for hours or days in in the hot sun waiting to be transported to another prison that kind of all was in the in the backdrop and and uh sheriff marlon gusman has been heavily criticized for it and you know he is up for re-election this year and one could kind of speculate on whether or not his decision to evacuate these, you know, the detainees at the jail uh, this time maybe was in some ways. Um, he may have had his eye a bit on on 
the election and the voters there. You know, I, I, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure most of it was uh, was was done with with safety in mind. But but whenever you have an election, that's going to play into decisions that may or may not play into decisions that people make as well. Right. Um, especially yeah. after the backdrop of Katrina, as, as Nick mentioned. Now, as to what as to consequences, when you look at Katrina, um, the answer there is sort of yes or yes and no. Um, you know, there were multiple lawsuits filed against the sheriff. Uh, filed by people or family members of people who who were trapped in the jail. Um, you know, I can't remember the outcome of all of those offhand. I remember in one case, uh, there was a, a substantial judgment against the sheriff that I think was later struck down in uh, in appeals courts. Um, and uh, also brought the scrutiny of the federal government on the Orleans Parish Jail, Orleans Parish Prison at the time. Um, and uh, that likely directly led to uh, the uh, imposition of a federal consent decree eight years later. Mm. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, you know, um, that was 2005 and uh, it's now 2021. We still have the same sheriff. There were not those sorts of political consequences. Um, and, uh, you know, he's up for, up for election again. Well, once, uh, communication is reestablished and you start hearing from either prisoners, inmates and, or family members of those people, I'm sure there'll be some interesting stories to tell. Thanks for covering yeah, it for us. Absolutely. Thanks, Karen. Marta, damage from Ida closed virtually every school in the region. You were, uh, the first to, to, Note that a third of Louisiana children are out of school right now. What do you know about when students might be able to go back? Yeah, so we know that it's a very obviously complicated process to go back. You need simple essentials like electricity. Uh, schools <laughs> need to restock their first clean out their freezers and fridges and restock them. Buses need to have gasoline. So it is it is much more than like State Superintendent Kate Bromley said on. Um, Tuesday, like it's not just power. It's a very complicated process. So I think in the Metro in New Orleans, we will see students go back between September 15th and the 22nd, um, which I believe ironically was our return to in-person schooling during COVID last year, as Mm. if we, you know, can just keep stacking these crises on top of each other. Um, But I think in the larger Metro region, it's going to be late September, if not earlier, mid-November. October. Yeah, I saw yesterday or the day before NOLA or uh, the Times Picayune was was uh, talking to uh, Jefferson Parish School Board and their their superintendent. Um, and I'm not sure if the situation has changed since this article was writ- was written. But at the time, they were saying even for the parts of the parish that saw the least damage, you know, talking about. Uh, sort of the the East Bank suburbs of New Orleans, they they're they're not talking there until early October. Yeah, it's a, it's a really really a lot of lost learning time, which is just so unfortunate. On top of you know, this is our third year where we've had COVID affecting yeah. schools and how we go to school, and and so this on top of that is just just one more thing. And what about folks who have trouble getting back? So I know that's very front of mind for all like charter school leaders and district leaders are, you know, thinking about their staff getting back, thinking about their students coming back. Um, you know, I talked to Ben Franklin's communication director, um, the high school, and they basically said, you know, we know power supposed to come back on September 8th, but you know, if our students aren't going to have it for another week, potentially like that, you know, that's a problem. So they hadn't set their reopening date until that, uh, the week of the 13th. So basically, they're just trying to look out for their staff and their students. 
most of the messaging from the school directors was, you know, please take care of your families last week and this week and and we'll we'll do our best to reopen the following week. So let me ask you, Marta, for, for people who, who may have had very extensive damage to their homes and are still possibly out of town, are they, at least in New Orleans, at all considering, you know, any, any sort of expanded virtual option? We know that was something people were demanding before the storm, uh, parents groups who were concerned about COVID. Um, has, has this pushed that issue at all with district leaders that you can see? So they have not explicitly addressed that in terms of, you know, kind of the damage um, assessment that you're mentioning. What they have said, which I did find interesting and is a fair point, I suppose, um, is that, you know, like everyone left in a hurry, right? Like this was a Friday. I think people maybe thought we were going to school on Monday. We obviously weren't. Um, and so students didn't take any students didn't take laptops home. They didn't take hotspots home. So like they did not take the equipment home that they might have had last year during remote learning. So, you know, d- distributing those that technology is is definitely a fair point that did not occur before the storm. Um, and then as far as virtual learning as an option for anyone who's evacuated or as an extended evacuation, um, they have not specifically addressed that. And what's happening right now with COVID? At this point, we would have been getting updates from the schools, the numbers and things. What are the, what are they telling us now? Right. So they're telling us nothing because they, they did not post their most recent COVID numbers. Um, I asked the district about that today. They should have had numbers as of August 27th, which they would typically post on August 30th, which would have been the day after Ida. And while that's very understandable, they are not releasing the numbers from that week because they say they're working to open the schools. And I do absolutely understand that their district is under a lot of pressure and has a ton of work to do evaluating schools and making sure kids can return safely. But I also think there's like a file in a computer somewhere that could just be released to the public. So we we could know our COVID numbers because I think it's very important to know those numbers going into the evacuation because we are seeing transmission, you know, when people have had to shelter in close quarters and um, are going into different situations where they don't, you know, necessarily know vaccinated or what, you know, the social distancing protocol will be, um, especially if you're potentially at a state run shelter. Right. Um, so at the moment, we don't know, we know there were 453 active cases um, the week going into the storm. Um, but I, we won't get those numbers. I don't think anytime soon, basically the district just told me quote, as soon as possible quote that they would let us know. Yeah. And, and, you know, keep in mind, um, you know, that last that last week of numbers for the district, that's potentially our last week of good numbers for, for a while, because testing capacity um, is not what it was before the storm. We've only got, you know, a handful of places, more places opening, doing testing, but only a handful of places right now that, that are open. Um, you know, we don't have, we don't have, uh, currently, you know, I don't know what their plan is for next week. Maybe Marta has more information. Uh, we don't know currently, you know, during the storm while schools have been closed, we haven't had school site testing like we had at the beginning of the year. They had a very robust program set up for this school year to do additional testing. For, uh, for students and teachers. We haven't had that the last couple of weeks. Philip Kiefer uh, did a graph yesterday of testing drop-off in Orleans Parish, um, you know, from before to after Ida. And it's, it's really dramatic and very striking. So, um, you know, all the data from, from the state when it concerns Southeast Louisiana and whatever we start to get from the district, everybody's going to have to keep that in mind for post, post-storm data is that it's not 
it's not going to be as high a quality as it was pre-storm. Right. And this isn't some gotcha journalism. Like these, these are numbers that should exist and would have been reported the week before the storm. And they are on a computer somewhere at the district. I would implore Orleans Parish School Board members to help release that data to us because I believe it exists. I was exposed to COVID while I was evacuated and had to get tested for it. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. Luckily it was negative, but you know, it's, it's a very real situation. Another rough beginning of a school year for these kids. Oh yeah. Well, Marta, thank you so much. Thank you. You guys hang in there. Talk to you next week. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, Marta Jusen, and Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.